It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't, but this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode four of 20. People see 20 years. I see 9-11 still. 9-11 is the longest day in the history of days. Every day's Tuesday. Only because I have to relive this every day with phone calls and emails and people suffering. Every day is 9-11. That's John Feel, and he says that because with his nonprofit, the Feel Good Foundation, John helps people receive the benefits they deserve because of injuries and illnesses they got from either working or living near Ground Zero or being part of its cleanup. An estimated 400,000 people were exposed to the toxic dust and debris caused by the tower's collapse. Shortly after the attacks, people started to fall sick because of the toxic environment. It turns out, pulverized glass, concrete, mercury, and many more deadly pollutants covered Ground Zero and its surrounding areas. As the years went on, many more people got sick, and a lot of them had no way of paying their medical bills because of arbitrary rules unprincipled politicians and companies that didn't want to do the right thing. With no one in their corner, John Feel, several other survivors, and a famous comedian would step in the ring, taking a historic fight to Congress to help countless men and women get the support they deserve. Today, John brings us this tragic and inspiring story. Given everything that's happened, you will hear at times intense and vulgar language. Listener discretion is advised. And now, a message about our generous sponsor. And now, let's get back to the story. Following the 9-11 attacks, 90,000 non-uniform workers, civilians who worked in mostly construction and other related trades, courageously braved the toxic conditions of Ground Zero to help rescue survivors, clear debris, and collect the remains of the dead. John was one of these people. He was a demolition supervisor from Wisconsin, Long Island, New York. And on September 12, 2001, John and his team were called to Ground Zero to aid in the cleanup and recovery mission. I got down there 12, 13 hours after it happened when that wave of non-uniform workers came in. And the non-uniform worker outnumbered the uniform worker four to one. It took 10 months to clean up Ground Zero. You would still be there today if every union trade did not come there. That's a fact. But on September 17th, after working there for five and a half days, roughly 8,000 pounds of steel crushed my left foot. John's team was cutting a large steel beam to be hauled away when suddenly that beam began to fall. The guy next to me got a little woozy. 
I was bleeding out of my boot about six feet into the air. I took his belt, I made a tourniquet below my knee, I hobbled over to the curb, I got my boot off, I couldn't get my sock off because the bones were sticking through it. Fire department was there within three or four minutes. Um, I was 120 over 80 like nothing happened, they called it coherent shock. I was screaming at everybody, get back to work, I'll be back in a couple hours. Um, <laughs> I laugh at that, but um, my injury humbled me. My injury humbled me to the point where um, I thought I was Bo Jackson and John Wayne. <laughs> I thought I was the world's best weekend athlete. And I've never been hurt, and I've never really bled. And I realized I'm human. And um, I spent nine days in Bellevue Hospital where I developed gangrene. And then I was transported to uh, North Shore University in Plainview, where I fought for my life for 10 weeks. And um, you lay in bed for like three days with the flu. You feel like you miss, oh, I miss my friend's birthday. I couldn't go to my, you know, kid's ball game. I laid on my back for 11 weeks. That's a game changer. It's a life changer. You you see different, you hear different, you smell different, you everything's different. You just everything that comes your way, you just see it different. And um when I got out of the hospital, I never met home. I went to my mother's apartment, I said, Mama, I gotta get help. She's like, Yeah, you go to therapy tomorrow to learn how to walk again. I said, No, I need help. So I went to therapy for two and a half years. Um, you know, a lot of people come to me, you know, oh, I have post-traumatic, you don't know what I'm going through. I said, yeah, I do. I was probably the first person diagnosed with post-traumatic because I was diagnosed in the hospital with post-traumatic. And um, you almost literally died from yeah. sepsis. Yeah, I was. So, uh, so th almost three months in yeah. the hospital battling. I was a uh, septic. I had gangrene and um, I had organ shutdown and organ failure. Um, but here I am and here we are. Sitting in this house on 9-10-01, I was living a good life. In my driveway, there was a Harley Davidson, a 1991 souped-up Jeep, an Expedition, and a Corvette. Wasn't married, have no kids. I worked hard, I played hard. From 2001 to 2002, after I got hurt and spent in the hospital, I had to start selling stuff to keep a roof over my head. So what was more important? And at the time, devastating. It was material. Now I look back, they're just material items. If I want to replace them, I can, but I chose not to. But to keep a roof over my head, I did whatever it took to survive. If you are a cop or a firefighter at the NY NYPD, you have health care if you got sick or injured or retired. A lot of tradesmen, unions, carpenters, electricians, um, iron workers you lose your job you lose your health care there was about 90,000 non-uniform workers down there and um, many of them got sick many of them lost their jobs then they lose their health care in the process of getting out of the hospital and learning how to walk again I had to get workman's comp and social security that took four years the company that I worked for sold me out to another company sold me out to another company the three of them sued each other not to pay me they spent more money on lawsuits than just paying me I got to a point where I had a chair in my living room and I made sure my dog ate before I did right so um, 
So when people come to me and say, oh, you don't know what I'm going through, you know, I do. I do. In the immediate aftermath of the attacks, Congress created the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund, also known as the VCF, which paid out about $7 billion to the families of those who were injured and lost their lives. 99% of the families that applied received compensation, but 1% weren't so fortunate. One of the biggest issues was that the original fund only covered victims that were injured within the first 96 hours of the attacks. I was denied the first VCF because they made the arbitrary date of 96 hours that it was still a terrorist attack where after 96 hours it was no longer a terrorist attack. I got hurt at 123 hours or something. Um, when I got denied that, that was devastating. Only to the sole fact it was, it was insulting. Like, I kept questioning, why did I do all of this stuff? Why did I go through so much? I fought for my life and everybody's got a rule of why I shouldn't get something. I almost died. He missed the arbitrary 96-hour cutoff by about a day. And John wasn't alone. Many were challenged with the obstacles I faced. My insurance didn't want to cover my medical bills, claiming that workers' comp should be responsible. Workers' comp said no because it was a terrorist attack, not a normal work injury that they would usually cover. So even many uniformed workers like myself were left behind with nobody having our backs. This pissed John off. During his childhood, John's mother raised him to protect those who couldn't protect themselves. So in high school, if a bully was picking on somebody, I just walk up to them and clock them in the mouth. <laughs> no words, just <laughs> clock them in the mouth. Why even talk about it? Most of America thinks 3,000 innocent lives were lost to senseless violence. Most of America doesn't even know what their building came down later that afternoon, right? I mean, you tell, oh, you know, building seven came down. No really? Idea. I didn't even know that. No idea. Um, but for the 343 firefighters, the 23 police officers from the NYPD and the 37 Port Authority, on top of the 2,700 whatever um, civilians, that's all they remember. And then when I tell them, you know, all of the people that have died since, they're like, what? I said, yeah, you know, so many people have COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, all of these illnesses, and cancer. 9-11 wasn't a clean environment. It was a toxic disaster. And over 3,000 people have died since 9-11 from their illnesses. Um, and it's going to get worse. Um, and it's going to get much worse. And it's going to be, um, I would say, over the next five up until about 2035, you'll see a majority of the 9-11 responder community, not the surviving community, the responder community, decimated and gone. Shortly after the attacks, the severity of health problems was not fully realized, and the government's help was not sufficient. By 2004, the original relief fund began to run out. And as you heard, many victims like John were blocked from its benefits. But John wouldn't just stand by. His tenacity inspired a dream team of 9-11 responders, a core group of around 15 guys, oftentimes bringing even more to D.C. by the busloads to lobby Congress to pass a series of laws that would provide more comprehensive relief to these victims. Their first major success was in 2010, passing the James Adroga 9-11 Health and Compensation Act, named after the brave NYPD detective who died in 2006 and was the first person whose death was attributed to the toxic environment of Ground Zero. 
On any given trip to DC, we met with 20, 30, 40 uh, meetings. The most meetings we ever did in one day is 55. 55 meetings. So I had three teams. I had my alpha team, which is my best of my best. They would take the hardest meetings. They would take the naysayers, those who were difficult. And at the end of the day, they looked like they got the beat out of them. But they were warriors and they just kept coming back for more. Then my B team, they were having meetings with people that were on the fence. And they usually had to have two, three, four, five, sometimes six meetings with that same office, same staff or same member to get them on board. Then I had my C team, the fluff team. They got the most co-sponsors, the most yes votes because we already knew they were gonna get on board. They just had to go in there, take a picture, smile, shake hands. They served their role. And then each team was capable of breaking up into two or three teams when we had doubled up meetings, like four meetings at 11 o'clock or six meetings at one o'clock. I roamed and I took the break glass in case of emergency one-on-one meetings with a member who's being a complete and just made their life miserable because behind closed doors, anything goes. So behind closed doors, I can go to Congressman so-and-so or Senator so-and-so, I'm gonna make your life so miserable. You're not gonna be able to breathe. You know, know, listen, Nancy Pelosi's a good friend, but in 2010, she played games while we were trying to get a bill passed and we were fighting Republicans and she's playing games. I had a seven minute meeting with Nancy Pelosi in 2010. Put my feet up on her desk. She said, young man, take your feet off my desk. I said, no, this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna have your phones blown up. I'm gonna make your life miserable. Yeah, okay, we'll see. Three days later, she called Carol Maloney. Carol Maloney said, all right, Pelosi caved. That was the local representative from Long Island. Carol Maloney. Congressman Maloney, yes. Here's what we did. We spread out into each building. So it made us look bigger than we were. Good military tactic. Right, so I mean, um, it wasn't really hard to outthink these people. Then, you get the intel on the individual member of Congress or the Senate, see how they vote, see where they're from, see what they did before they became a member. And then we used it against them because everybody on September 11th would come out and say something patriotic on how they support it, blah, 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 blah. And we'd hold it against them. So one of my team leaders, Rob Serra at DMY, yes. he would print it out for all of the teams, hand them that. So every night before we went on the hill, we would have a team meeting. One big happy meeting. Then the teams would break up in the, at the dinners and go over their strategy for the following day. And then Rich was in charge of all of those teams. And then Rich had a report to me. And then at the end of the day, we took notes. So when we went into a meeting, there was five or six guys in the team. The team leader dictates and controls the meeting. Don't let them ever control me. The other guy takes notes. The other guy tells his personal story. The other guys are just like Andy. And then you rotate. The next meeting, you're the eye candy. You tell your personal story. Team leader dictates meeting. And we just did this relentlessly over and over and over again and just kept hitting them. I'm a strong believer, you know, no offense to any of the unions, but when you have conversations with the leadership, well, how often do you guys go to D.C.? Oh, once every six months. Well, that's not going to get you. You had to go two, three, four, five times a month. You had to put your foot on their neck and you couldn't let them breathe. 
That's how you get legislation passed. It also helped that John had the ear and the audience of another John. Late night show host John Stewart caught wind of what was going on, and he wanted to help. In 2010, John asked me to come on his show, and I said no. He said, what do you mean you can't come on my show? I said, I got to go to D.C. tomorrow, and we got two days left. The bill's going to die, and we have to start all over. He goes, oh, I like that, a man of integrity. Give me four guys. And um, I'm assuming you're worth four guys. We'll put them on the show. And I put John on, uh, I gave John four guys. And they went on that show and he dedicated the whole show to them. Uh, Kenny Speck, firefighter, cancer survivor, a, a cop, a construction worker, and an operating engineer. And two days later, we got a bill passed. And it wasn't a great bill. It was a five-year bill. It was more like a litmus test. There was no cancer added. Uh, cancer came a year later. And in 2015, we did it again to prove that 2010 wasn't a fluke. And while the victories are shallow because so many people got sick and died, um, many of my my own team, um, I had to go to their funerals. So this was personal. Before 2015, the bill only covered four cancers. After 2015, when it was reauthorized and updated, it covered 69. It also extended the Victims' Compensation Fund for another five years. The Feel Good Foundation was making significant progress. But then, in 2019, the fund started to run out of money, again. And the Justice Department threatened to cut funding even further. John Field rallied the troops. His dream team of first responders and John Stewart were scheduled to give testimonies in front of the House Judiciary Committee on June the 11th, 2019. A week before the event, John calls me. He's like, I want to read you my speech. He reads his speech. And he goes, what do you think? So one, you use words I don't even know. So I mean, you know, <laughs> dude, you're too smart for me. But two, I think it's really good. But you're John Stewart. You're the best sit-down comedian that this country's ever seen. And you can articulate anything. Why would you read something when you could just shoot from the hip? He's like, I don't want to fail the guys. I said, John, you've never failed us. He goes, I just want to do this one right. I said, doing it right would you speaking from the heart. So the whole week, he would call me, text me, email me, making tweaks to his speech. I go, whatever, man. So the day we went to, the day before we went to D.C. was Ray Pfeiffer's golf outing. Ray Pfeiffer was an FDMY firefighter and bravely fought a 9-11-related terminal cancer for eight years until he died in 2017. He was a lead member of their crew. For years, amidst his cancer treatments, Ray lobbied politicians in New York and D.C. From his wheelchair, Ray went from one meeting to the next, convincing politicians to do their jobs. Joe, his brother, put up his bunker coat um, gear for auction. So while I was in D.C., I outbid everybody for that coat. It was $7,000. And then I paid another $1,000 for somebody to drive the coat down before John Stewart got to D.C. And um, that morning, I had everybody sign it. But it was like 42 of us. And as that 42 was cops, firefighters, 
construction workers, those that lived in Lower Manhattan. It was a diverse group of people that were fighting for tens of thousands of people. All the guys were waiting inside, and um, I waited for John outside, and um, I gave John a letter on my letterhead, and I, I've used my letterhead about six times, usually for college kids, um, for you know recommendations, and um, I gave John a letter on my letterhead. I said, "Dear John, I miss and love Ray dearly. I miss and love my mother dearly. Don't ever make me miss you because I love you dearly." He just started crying. He's hysterical crying. So we're outside, and uh, we get ourselves together. We go inside, and there's Kenny holding the coat with all the guys in the hallway. And then he loses it again. So my plan was to get John in his natural habitat of being John Stewart, not some robotic person reading from a piece of paper. Because you know there were six people going before John, and they were all going to read a script. We helped Lou Alvarez's speech. We helped with Michael Connell's speech, right? We knew what everybody's role was to play that day. So when we went into the room, special master spoke, a doctor spoke, a widow spoke, a survivor. Everybody was speaking, and then Lieutenant Michael Connell went, and he did a great job. And um, the whole time while everybody was speaking, if you watch the whole video, you'll see me and John communicating. Uh, either by text or by leaning over to each other and talking. I was getting under his skin and I was talking to him. And I was getting him all pumped up. And then Lou Alvarez went. Lou was a retired NYPD detective. Fighting an illness, he got working at Ground Zero. You won't believe how many rounds of chemo this hero went through. It was bad, really bad. He was in his final stretch. And still, he testified before Congress. You made me come down here the day before my 69th round of chemo. And I'm going to make sure that you never forget to take care of the 9-11 responders. Lou died 18 days after that. To get Lou to D.C. in that condition, um, I pray I never have to do that again. And um, as soon as Lou was done, you're not supposed to clap or cheer or make any noises in the committee room. I had to make a distraction. So I stood up and I started clapping. What are they gonna do, yell at John Field? And um, everybody got up and started clapping. And then it got quiet, everybody sat down. And he's got his speech and he rolls it up. And you know, when, if you ever watch John Stewart on The Daily Show, when he tapped that pencil, Usually men, he was about to lay the lumber, right? I mean, right? What I witnessed was perfection. We'll hear John Stewart's perfect speech after the break. Let's return to John Stewart's speech, shaming Congress. Behind me, a filled room of 9-11 first responders, and in front of me, a nearly empty Congress. There is not a person here, there is not an empty chair on that stage that didn't tweet out, never forget the heroes of 9-11, 
Never forget their bravery. Never forget what they did, what they gave to this country. Well, here they are. And where are they? And it would be one thing if their callous indifference and rank hypocrisy were benign, but it's not. Your indifference costs these men and women their most valuable commodity, time. It was like eight and a half minutes of, he chastised the body of work. He articulated our pain and suffering and he put his foot in Congress's. At that time, I was already texting McConnell's office for a meeting. The then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had been encouraging John to give him more time to close a deal. But time was something many of these victims didn't have. McConnell gave me that meeting two weeks later. And I already met with McConnell's staff twice before that in April and May. Um, and that just solidified everything. So John gives a speech, we do a couple interviews. Um, and then two weeks later, we have a meeting with McConnell. And um, I took five of my team leaders to the meeting with McConnell. So in 2015, I had a meeting with McConnell and they escorted me to his office with four Capitol Police with AR-15s. And it wasn't a good meeting. So when he came into the room, he started talking and I said, you're an you are a pompous, arrogant. And then one of my team leaders uh, at that time um, said, John, don't. I said, get out, get out of the meeting, you're gone. He had to leave. Um, then I, I, I chewed into McConnell pretty hard. And then, uh, but that meeting in 2019 was totally different because in 2015, he had a girl come in the office with a piece of paper and she handed it to him in the meeting and it was blank. He was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go. That same girl came into the meeting in 2019 and he said he stayed. But Lou Alvarez gave me his shield, not his badge, his shield. And um, two things were gonna happen in that meeting. I was gonna have, we were gonna speak and then let him speak or he was gonna speak. And then we, we spoke. A couple of, Kenny Speck spoke. Um, another team leader spoke and then I went and I spoke for about 10 or 15 minutes and then he tried to cut me off a couple of times. He said, no sir, this is 17 years of some serious bent up frustration. You're going to hear me out. And then it was time to give McConnell the shield of NYPD Detective Lou Alvarez. Just days before he died, Lou asked John to give his shield to McConnell. Not as a symbol of gratitude, but of urgency. I leaned over to him and I shook his hand and I had Lou's shield and I shook his hand and he took it and I held his hand and I mean I held his hand I squeezed it out of Mitch McConnell's hand I said this is not a gift this is from Lou Alvarez this is a reminder for you to do the job that you were elected to do this is a reminder for you to be a human being to put aside the politics and I I saw a different side of Mitch McConnell he actually got watery eyed and I was saying to myself, like, wow, Darth Vader cries, right? I mean, because that's how I look at him. And I said, give me your word that we'll get this done before summer. So here's the thing. This whole thing of the May, June, with John and I and my team 
our allies wanted us to wait to the end of the year to get the bill passed. We pissed off a lot of people. We burnt a lot of bridges. There was only a couple of Senate offices and House offices that had our back. Everybody else was like, do this at the end of the year. But at that time, we were getting 70% cuts on the VCF awards. And I said, how do you tell that to people that can't keep a roof over their head or put food on their table? My guys were getting the beat at it. I'm co- Listen, I am the least selfish person I know. I'm a kidney donor to a complete stranger. But it was selfish of me to ask Lou Alvarez and Ray Pfeiffer and others to go to D.C. And I, every time I see their widows, I apologize to them and I say I'm sorry. But the collateral damage had to end. And I had to do this before the summer recess instead of waiting until December to get attached to a larger vehicle. There were tens of thousands of people waiting for help. John had my back 100%. He believed in the game plan. So when I told Mitch McConnell, I said, look, we have to go outside. There was like 200 cameras outside waiting for us. I got to tell him you're with us or you're against us. He goes, you will get this done before the summer recess. So we went out there. I did an impromptu press conference with the guys. Fox News apologized for my saucy language because <laughs> I cursed <laughs> they, the They didn't have time to bleep you out. <laughs> no. Um, it was comical. <laughs> but, you know, we got a bill passed. And that's all that mattered to me. While some thought it wasn't the right way to go about it, and they let me know, I also let them know I didn't give it. Because there's now over 110,000 people getting free health care. And there's now over 70,000 with a BCF claim getting compensated. I'm never going to apologize for that. Ever. In 2019, we got what we wanted. We demanded what we wanted, which is a straight up and down vote. 9-11 responders, volunteers, those who lived in lower Manhattan, went to school in lower Manhattan, worked in lower Manhattan. This bill was for everybody. And we advocated for everybody, not just the cops, not just the firefighters, not just the construction workers. It was for everybody. We put aside our egos, we put aside our differences, we put aside our ideologies, our religions, our politics. In 2019, when um, the bill got passed, that was the first time I cried. And I think that was just 17 years of frustration and bent up anger that finally had to come out of me. And um, I had to excel. And um, to see my guys who worked so hard to see their work come to fruition, I think that's why I really cried. Um, again, this bill's not perfect. It's got a lot of flaws, but it is providing healthcare and it is offering a compensation package. Um, and I owe, you know, listen, the American people got behind us. They sent emails and phone calls to their elected officials. The media did their job. John Stewart did his job. But those 30, 40 people on any given time I went to DC in that core group of 15, America will never know their names. They'll think of Feel Good Foundation or John Field or John Stewart, but they're the reason why this bill got passed. They all got their VCF awards. Many of them became millionaires overnight. When we were done, we we were in the parking lot, and I said, listen, put your swords down. Put your swords down. Go home, pick up your rake, plan something and watch a girl with your loved ones. If I ever need you again, I'll actually get your swords. To this day, we're all still in touch. 
if anything from this interview, I pray if you were there, if you were downtown, if you were south of Canal Street to the Brooklyn Bridge to the water, um, even if you're not sick, get in the program. Get in the program now. And that goes for if you were at the Pentagon, if you were at Shanksville, get in the program. You're at a higher risk, a 60% chance, a higher risk of getting cancer than the rest of the population. Get in the program, take your yearly physical, knock on wood, it comes back clean. But if it doesn't, then you have two years to file a claim and get compensated for it. It's that simple. We busted our for 17 years so people get in the program and people get what they earned. And um, we're not done. Because we got legislation passed, we live in the real world, and every day we're advocating for people to get in the program and to ensure that the doctors and the nurses in the World Trade Center Health Program are treating these men and women the right way. At the end of the day, here's the power that we hold, the juice that I have. Because of the work that we did, we didn't just make sure that 9-11 responders and the survivors got health care and compensation. We provided economic relief and job security for everybody that takes care of us. They owe us. They don't work for corporate America. They work for the 9-11 community. And we have to ensure that they're doing their jobs on a daily basis. Because when we get a phone call or an email saying this happened or that happened, can you help me? Um, when I have to call the World Trade Center Health Program and NIOSH or the DOJ and the VCF, I'm not calling to say, hey, let's get a cup of coffee. I'm calling to say, what the is wrong here? Why did this person get treated like that? Or why did that person fall through the cracks? So again, while it's not perfect, then again, no government-run program is perfect. I mean, Workman's Comp, Social Security, the VCF, the World Trade Center Health Program, all of these are flawed. But it's up to advocates to ensure that their membership gets help. You know, there's so many people in this country that believe in a cause. And I hope everybody believes in a cause. And I hope everybody would get involved in a cause that they believe in. But so many people give up. So quickly they give up because, oh, I can't speak to my member of Congress and the Senate. They won't listen to me. Make them listen to you. Oh, I don't have the resources. Find the resources. There's always an excuse of why not to do something, right? I mean... Again, I paid for a lot of it before the Feel Good Foundation could pay for anything. Um, that's on me. I'm going to live with that the rest of life knowing what I did. The park I built cost me out of my pocket $140,000 or it would never gotten completed on top of the $258 it already cost. So, um, John, can you elaborate about the park? Tell the folks what it is exactly. Yeah, so, um, it's a beautiful monument to... The 9-11 Responders Remember Park is dedicated to those who have died since 9-11 from their illnesses. In 2008, the town officials came to me and said, we want to build a 9-11 memorial. So at this intersection, it was a really bad intersection. There was an accident there like every day. It was a jogged intersection. And um, they fixed it. And then it was an open lot. And they said, well, we want to build a 9-11 memorial. And they asked me to come have a meeting with them. And I said, that's great. I'll make a donation. But I'm not going to get involved. And they're like, why not? I said, well, there's 9-11 memorials everywhere. Rightfully so. 
but there's no 9-11 memorial for those who have died since. And they were looking at me like, what? What are you talking about? I said, do you guys know how many people died? They're like, what? I said, look, this is what I want to do. If not, I'll find another spot. A couple weeks went by. They asked me a few questions. Didn't hear from them for a month or two. And then in the, around the holidays of 2008, they said, you got your way. I said, really? Serious? Okay. And then um, started building the park. It took about two years. Got a 60-foot granite wall. It's got a 17-foot high clock. Uh, Channel 11 News donated that. That was $27,000. Um, it's got a piece of steel. It's got a waterfall. It's got statues of cops, firefighters. It's even got a statue for the dogs, uh, the comfort dogs and the rescue dogs that work there. Um, and uh, for the last 11 years, it's been serving the 9-11 community. Every Saturday after the anniversary of 9-11, we do a reading of the names event. And then we get a flyover. Then Suffolk County Police yell at me that the red, white, and blue helicopter was too low. But, you know, the crowd wants to see it, right? Um, you know, it's a somber event. And while everybody on that wall's had a wake and a funeral, this is more of a, an event to, to honor their, 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 their sacrifice and their courage. Um, you know, every morning I wake up, I want to do better than I did yesterday. But every morning when I wake up, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of my, of my injury because it's visual. I'm sure you're reminded of your leukemia because of the pills you take and... Losing my job. But I, um, I say to myself every morning, I just say, I didn't come this far to just come this far. Every morning. Thank you for joining us for today's story. To learn more, go to 20for20podcast.com. New episodes drop every Thursday, and we hope you tune in for the next. Also, please consider donating to John's nonprofit, the Feel Good Foundation. They continue to fight for the victims of 9-11, many who are suffering in silence, and he is their voice. He's also often their parachute. Sometimes these victims are struggling, trying to get compensation and his foundation is there to relieve them of their financial burden until they receive it. You can learn more and donate at thefeelgoodfoundation.com. That's F-E-A-L, goodfoundation.com. And to all of those who have served our great country in one way or another, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you, and please stay safe out there. And now before we close, a special message from a dear friend of mine. Hi, this is actor Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law & Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl, Rescue Me. But I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen. Folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today, as Nils so powerfully says. I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. And I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them. So I became a volunteer firefighter and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.